Well, the word for today is wow. Wow. Wow, because when we experience delight or wonder or gratitude or, or just what a miracle it is to be alive, that's kind of the word beyond definition. Wow. Wow. I'll bet if we were all to share the biggest wow in our lives so far, there would be some amazing stories here. I actually heard one not long ago. A woman named Mona Simpson was a writer in New York, uh, and she got a phone call that she had a biological brother that she didn't even know existed. And he, he had learned about her, he wanted to meet her, and it was like something out of a novel that she was trying to write. And they met, and he said he was interested in technology. And she's like, well, that's kind of interesting, because she used a manual typewriter, but she was thinking of getting a computer. And he said it was a good thing she hadn't gotten one yet because he was going to design a computer so insanely beautiful she would be glad she waited. And his name was Steve Jobs. Okay? True story. Imagine you woke up one day and found out Steve Jobs was your brother. Like that actually happened to this woman, Mona Simpson. She was stunned by his words, I'm your brother. But those were not the most stunning words she ever heard from him. Those would come later. And we're going to come back to them. But think just for a minute, like what if wow is just built into existence? It's built into reality and we're just too jaded or old in spirit or, or warped by sin. So we keep missing it. You know, some people live like, well, well, what's God done for me lately? You know, my job is dull. My car's old. My hair looks bad. My hair's gone. My, my grades are mediocre. I don't have a spouse or I do, but I'm pretty sure it's the wrong one. See, people live as though they have nothing to praise God for, but we live in this universe of light and life that we're told exploded from a singularity smaller than the head of a pin in less than a second, and you're alive in it. And this morning you woke up and you got another day, and your heart is beating, and your lungs are breathing, and your mind works, and you have a church, and you have a God who loves you. And you have, if you want, a Savior who died for you. And you have, if you want, the Holy Spirit of God to guide you. And you have, if you want, a purpose in this life and the promise of heaven in the life to come. And that's just for starters. Like, imagine you woke up and, in fact, the God who made all of this turns out to be your Father who loves you. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Wow. Like, there is a producer of wows. There's a wow-er. And that's God. And... There's a receiver of wows, a wowee, and that's you and me. And when a wow gets directed toward God, the word for that the Bible uses is worship. We're actually commanded to practice worship. The psalmist puts it like this. He says, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Wow. See, the Bible is full of statements and commands like that. <coughs> and I want to say a word about this because in our day, a lot of people like wonder, like, what's the deal there, right? Like, why? Why, why would God want people to constantly praise him and worship him? It seems kind of needy, doesn't it? I mean, imagine if a, a CEO or a movie star or a politician was so egotistical, they would just want a bunch of people to stand around and tell them how great they are all the time. And people wonder, is, is that what God's like? The great thinker C.S. Lewis wrote, before he became a believer, the idea of God commanding people to praise him troubled him for these reasons. But he noticed something about the human spirit. See, anytime we see beauty or excellence or something that's admirable, 
our experience of that thing is actually incomplete until we're able to express our joy. See, if we just had to say nothing and hold in our joy, that would be unsatisfying. See, joy naturally overflows into praise. We say stuff like this to each other. Hey, you got to read this book or, hey, you know, you got to watch this video or you got to listen to this song. You got to go see the Northern Lights and I got to try this food. See, joy inevitably flows over into praise. We're born primed to praise. We're just that way. And so, so God delights in it, not because God is some needy, you know, empty character with a low sense of self-esteem. And he's just got to have people running around pumping him up all the time. On the contrary. See, in the ancient world, like worship involves sacrifice, generally speaking. Worship generally involves sacrifice because people believed often that it was because the gods needed food. So we've got to sacrifice so the gods can eat. In fact, in the ancient Mesopotamian world, most of the other creation narratives included this idea that God created people to raise food to feed him, feed them. That's what sacrifices were about. Of course, it wasn't that way with the God of Israel. Uh, there's actually a line from uh, God in the Psalms that I love where he says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> like if I've got an appetite, I've got plenty of ways to satisfy it without needing you to do anything. In other words, God is not needy emotionally or physically. He delights in our praise because it means that we're awake to all his gifts, to all of his goodness and and the beauty and the, the wonder and the absolute miracle of what it is to be alive. We all have what might be kind of called a wow threshold. You know, in other words, kind of the amount of goodness that needs to flow into your life to trigger delight. And some people go throughout the day, wow. Oh, wow, wow. Like it just takes a little bit to trigger thankfulness and praise in them. You know, like a flower, a sunset, or a, kind, a certain kind of food. Other people get old in spirit and jaded and cynical and self-preoccupied and they've not said wow in a long time. C.S. Lewis noted that for people who are growing and thriving and loving, these are the people who praise God the most. And people who are stagnant and cranky and self-centered, they praise the least. In fact, he wrote, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I love that. Inner health made audible. That's a great definition of praise. So in the time that's left, I want to talk about how you and I can get worship right. Because we're at the end of this series now called Practice Not Perfect. We've been looking at practices that are required for us to grow and flourish and live in spiritual vitality. And these are also needed for church to be a great church. Well, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth because they're having a hard time getting worship right. So what I want us to do is I want us to put some stakes in the ground as we're like at the beginning of a brand new year here. I want us to lay out some commitments about worship, and I'm going to invite you to make these commitments in your own life and invite us to do that together as a church that worships God. So here we go. The first one is this. We will offer wholehearted worship to our God. Not half-hearted or perfunctory or casual. Paul says this to the church. He says, so here's what I want you to do. He says, when you gather for worship, each one of you, Be prepared with something that's going to be useful for all. Sing a hymn, teach a lesson, tell a story, lead a prayer, provide an insight. You notice Paul says when, not if you gather. He just assumes it's going to happen. 
So you might just be visiting from someplace or kind of in a seeking mode spiritually. But if you're a follower of Jesus and FPPC is your home church, I want to call all of us to make this commitment. When the church gathers to worship God, I'll be there worshiping. I'll find some other time to crank out more homework or more housework or more work work. When the body gathers to express our devotion to our Savior, I'll be there. If I'm a parent, I'll model that for my children. I'll make sure that having them having adults who know them and care for them and pour the love of God into their lives will be my high priority. The writer of Hebrews says, let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. I know, you know, we travel, and, but if you're not traveling and you wake up in your home and you're tempted to think, well, you know, I could just stay here in my pajamas and turn First Presbyterian into Bedside Baptist, you know, is that a good idea? No. No, trust me, I spent the last two months confined to bed where all I could do is worship remotely via video. It's not the same. If your body's here in town and you're healthy enough to make it, we want all of our bodies here together. Another statement from the Bible is this, God inhabits the praise of his people. Isn't that cool? God inhabits the praise of his people. The idea is simple but quite profound is that we are able to experience God together in a way that we can't quite separately. Now, the reverse is also true. You can experience God in solitude in a way that's unique as well. That's why you need both. Toward the beginning of my freshman year in high school, our family started attending a a different church. And I went to Sunday school each week because that's just what we did. That's not an optional thing in my family. And if it was Sunday, we're at church unless we're like seriously sick. And if... uh, it was just kind of this non-negotiable, which was great because, you know, I'm just glad my parents made it a high priority. But at this new church, like I didn't really know a lot of the other kids and most of them were older than me. And, you know, I was kind of an insecure freshman anyway. So I didn't always want to go to youth group or some of the special events. And I'll never forget what my mom said to me. She says, Rob, they're counting on you. And I'm like, no, I'm like, they don't even know me. Like, they're not counting on me. She says, no, they're counting on you makes a difference if you're there or not. Won't be the same without you. See, when we gather together each week, somebody comes who's lost a family member recently. Somebody's depressed. Somebody has a medical report that's really serious. Somebody got betrayed. Somebody is living with deep pain. Maybe they can't even sing the songs, but you can sing for them. You can embrace them, you can see them, you can pray for them, you can love them. That's actually the main reason we gather together. There's lots of ways that information can be disseminated, but we gather together to be able to love each other and to love God together. Your worship will encourage another person's spirit. makes a difference whether you're here or not. We're counting on you. One woman was going through a real deep valley. And she said that when she comes to church, her prayer is, God, who can I connect with that needs help today? I thought that was so cool. Like, when you give love to somebody else, your own heart gets healing. Your own heart gets hope. The psalmist said, this is our aim in worship. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. See, we're putting stakes in the ground around worship today. And here's one of them. We'll make his praise glorious. Why should we do that? Well, it's because he's worth it. 
He's worth it. He's worth our best praise. Worshiping God is not just a casual thing. So when we gather together, come ready to make his praise glorious. So what Paul's talking about to the church at Corinth. He says, when you gather, come prepared. Come ready to think about God and to let other people get built up. Come in a spirit of anticipation. Worship is a lot like life that way. You know, you get out of it what you put into it. Life's like that and worship's like that. Because God's worthy of our best worship, I want to call all of us to intend to offer our best to him and to make his praise glorious because God inhabits the praise of his people. It'll bless other people and it'll bless God. Number two, as a church and for each of us individually, we will offer God mindful worship. We're not going to allow our minds to kind of go on autopilot, as they tend to do. See, in part of Paul, what, what Paul's correcting in Corinth is that people were so hungry for this emotional, ooey-gooey, kind of ecstatic experience in worship, which is not bad, but they're kind of going after that so much, their minds are just kind of going on autopilot. And he says, I should be spiritually free and expressive as I pray, but I should also be thoughtful and mindful as I pray. I should sing with my spirit, be very spirited and expressive singing, and sing with my mind. See, worship always begins in the mind because our mind is the only place where you can meet with God. If you're going to meet with God, it's going to be in and through your mind and through your thoughts. So worship always begins in the mind. So I bring into my mind God's goodness and God's patience, and I bring his greatness, and I bring his kindness, and I bring his love. Now, some people just think like worship, you know, Worship, that's about the music, you know? It just means music. But worship is way, way more than that. Like Adam and Eve worshiped God even before music had been invented. And sometimes people think, well, it's not just about music, it's about a certain kind of music. So what do you, kind of music do you think God is, likes best? What's his favorite kind of music? The old translation of Psalm 100 begins like this. It says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye nations. That's a pretty low bar musically, you know, make a joyful noise. Anybody can do that. I just think, think of all the nations and the peoples and the cultures and generations. Like, if it's a different culture, sometimes it's going to sound like noise to me. But I kind of think God loves all kinds of music because he invented all of them. And the reason why we use music in worship is that worship begins in the mind, but it can't stay there. It spreads to my whole body, including emotions. And to reflect on God without worshiping God is not to reflect on the true God because he's so wonderful. To worship God is to ascribe worth to God. You're worthy. That's the great cry of the entire Bible. It's going to be the great cry of eternity. This is how it gets expressed in Revelation. He says, you're worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. All things. Every moment is a gift. Every bit of wonder, every bit of joy, every bit of beauty. And we only taste a tiny little bit of it right now. He says, you created all things and by your will, they were created and have their being. They just keep living because of you. So we'll worship God with our minds and our whole beings. Third, we will offer God worship as a way of life and not just an hour a week. See, the main problem with worship at Corinth was that they're all concerned about having this personally satisfying worship experience. Uh, they were more concerned with that than they were with loving people and helping people. In other words, they kind of disconnected their worship experience from their actual lives and relationships. And that's a bad thing. 
There's very simple counsel from Scripture about how to begin to incorporate praise into your constant, ordinary, moment-to-moment, everyday life. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's just read those words together out loud. Ready? Taste and see that the Lord is good. We all know what it is to taste. But it's also possible to lose your sense of taste. Uh, Rosalie had uh, COVID back in August, the version where one of the side effects is you lose your sense of taste. And some of you have experienced that too. Turns out tasting is not automatic. It's not something to which I'm entitled and over which I have control. It's a gift. Taste can be lost. Taste. It's an act that must be developed and practiced and done with careful attention. Taste and see. The sun comes up. The smile of a friend. Clothes to wear. Food to eat. Bed to sleep in. The scriptures to make us wise. The Holy Spirit to live in us and to inspire us and enlighten us. The life and teachings and the presence of Jesus Christ to be our friend. Taste and see. Taste and see. It's a gift, but you got to practice. you got to learn how. Fourth, in worship, we choose joy. In worship, we'll choose joy. We'll, we'll live in joy. That is not always easy. In fact, I'm going to go as far as to say it's usually not easy. Usually not. See, we live in a fallen, broken world. We're fallen, broken people. And many of us are experiencing levels of spiritual and emotional, maybe physical pain that's just crippling to us. That's just our world. And Paul, Paul was in trouble, in chains, facing death when he wrote these words. He said, rejoice in the Lord occasionally. Now what he says? No. He says, rejoice in the Lord when something goes your way. You know, things are, are looking terrific and you're feeling good and You get a raise at work, you get an A on your exam, you win the lottery. No, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul, who knows all about suffering and pain and hardship and loss and death. And then just in case somebody doesn't figure out he meant it, he says it again. He says, I'll say it again, rejoice. Rejoice. See, this call to joy from a good and powerful God runs all throughout Scripture. Psalm 96, let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. We read in another place that the trees of the field will clap their hands. That'd be kind of cool to see. Jesus says, I have taught you this. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So let me just ask you, how much does it take? How full does your cup have to be for it to produce joy and delight in you? There was an article in Psychology Today that said the average four-year-old laughs 300 times a day. 300 times a day. The average 40-year-old laughs four times a day. Like, what happens to us? Like, does the world become less beautiful? What if children are right? What if existence itself, your life right now, is a God-created miracle filled with so much wonder and gratitude and delight that could be just running through our, our veins like blood? You know, and if it, it, in our sin and our fear and our lack of faith in God's ultimate power, that's what makes us old and sad and ungrateful and withered in our spirits. Maybe that's why Jesus said, unless you become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. 
See, you and I are headed for eternal joy that is so powerful. Like the laugh of a little child, that's just a tiny little glimpse of it. And I wonder if you've made that choice to become like a child that Jesus invites us to. See, part of the deal about worship is we all worship something or somebody. To be human makes that inescapable. You will devote your ultimate allegiance and your ultimate devotion to something. Might be money, might be a job, might be your appearance, might be my reputation. I will, on purpose or by accident, for better or for worse, worship something. And I want to challenge you today to offer your ultimate worship to God because your biggest wow moment, like whatever uh, you pressed of things you've done or whoever you are, your biggest wow moment lies before you. I mentioned earlier that his sister said Steve Jobs' most amazing words came later in life. See, he was like all human beings. He was kind of a mess, you know, of different complexities. And he had amazing gifts, could also be a very difficult person. His biographer said that uh, he went through 67 nurses to find three he liked as he's suffering through cancer. I mean, this is a guy with high standards. They brought him an oxygen mask. But he loved the beauty of design so much that even though he was deeply sedated, he ripped the oxygen mask off because he said it was too ugly to wear. And so they had to bring him five options of oxygen masks for him to select one. And after he died, his sister Mona, the one from New York, told this story at his memorial service. She said at the very end, as his breathing was becoming labored, lying in that bed, his family gathered around him. He looked at his sister and he looked at his children and he looked at his wife. And Steve Jobs spoke one last time. And he said, Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And then he died. We don't know what those words mean. We don't know if he was, you know, thinking of what was behind him, that extraordinary life, or about what was before him. We don't know if he was grateful or fearful or if he saw something nobody else around him could see. We just know his last words were, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. See, what I do know and what Jesus taught is that your ultimate wow lies before you. So your final moment will come and then the moment after that. And I hope you're ready for that moment. And if you've never committed your life fully to Jesus, I want to invite you to do that today. See, he lived to teach and show what life with God could be like in a human being. He says, I've told you these things that my joy might be in you. And then he died uniquely on a cross for the forgiveness of the sins of the human race. And he rose again for the promise of hope, your hope. If you want to, you can confess your need to, to him your sin, and make him your savior and your friend. And there is no bigger wow moment for us as a church than when somebody does that. In fact, not just us, but Jesus says there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. When one sinner humbles himself, confesses their sin, receives forgiveness, and makes Jesus their their friend and their forgiver forever, they cross over from death to life. All of heaven says, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Wow. God the Father himself says, oh, wow. Oh, wow. So I want to invite you to your biggest oh, wow moment this day. And I want to give all of us a moment to respond. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up.
In thinking about worship and expressing our hearts to God, I was reading about the difference between saying to somebody, love you, and I love you. You know, love you, that's kind of said in casual conversation or maybe between casual friends. I love you is in a different category. I love you. I can still remember the day I said those words to Rosalie for the first time. Those words didn't come easily for me. I'd literally never said them to a woman before, although I was in my late 20s at the time. That was a big deal for me. And by the time I worked up the nerve to say them, we'd been married several years. It's not true, not true. But I heard about one woman who was asked, have you ever said I love you out loud to God? And she said she never said those words to God out loud. And so she did. And it was kind of vulnerable. It was kind of intimate. And she said that her whole relationship with God changed. I love you, God. I love you, God. You're worthy. And I want to give you a chance to say that to him today out loud. I love you, God. Let's stand it.